You're listening to a sermon from Midtown Presbyterian Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about Midtown and its ministry, please visit us at midtownpres.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. You guys, between the years of 1920 and 1950, there was a fascinating trend that emerged in the United States. Some of the largest tobacco corporations and distributors in the country, organizations like Lucky Strike and Camel, they partnered with Hollywood production companies and celebrities to promote their products. And so soon, over the course of these decades, superstars in America, stars like Betty Davis and John Wayne and Clark Gable, they started smoking dozens of cigarettes each day. They started appearing in advertisements for these cigarette companies. They started smoking in their movies on a regular basis. And the goal for these tobacco companies was to make the practice of smoking appear not only socially beneficial, but health-wise beneficial. And this was an era in American history referred to today as Hollywood's golden era. So this was a time when people would flood to movie theaters and they would put great trust in the celebrities that they saw on screen. This was central to our culture. And so this partnership between Big Tobacco and Hollywood worked like a charm for those companies. Smoking became the norm in our culture. Men and women, it was weird if you didn't smoke. It was so weird, in fact, that most doctors smoked. Teen smoking skyrocketed in popularity. Millions of people were taught and believed that smoking was normal, that it was something that everyone should do, and that it was actually healthy for us. And it wreaked havoc over the following decades. From the years 1950 to 1990, here in the U.S., death rates from lung cancer skyrocketed over 300% in our country. A generation was ravaged from this partnership. The crowds were flooding to movie theaters, seeing smoking happening. They saw it promoted, and they embraced it, and it led to destruction. How could we let something like that happen? How could we bring such harm on ourselves broadly as a culture? How was it that so many people became so captive to this blatant lie? There's a lot of different reasons, but one can be found in our human nature. We are crowd-conditioned people. See, we as humans have this innate desire to believe that something is good or healthy or right or true because the crowds flock to it. Modern social psychologists have come up with a term for this. They call it the bandwagon effect or bandwagon bias. The more that crowds flock to something, the more inclined that we are to think that that thing is worth flocking to. And so when celebrities are drawing the crowds to a certain practice and we are crowd conditioned, those two things come together to decimate a generation. And it can be easy for us, looking back on something like that today as modern, enlightened people in 2022, right? And think, well, I mean, those people, they were a little more gullible, they weren't as well informed, but I mean, we can, we can be aware of this sort of crowd conditioning that exists, and we can overcome this in our own lives, right? We know better today. There's a guy named C.S. Lewis who called this notion chronological snobbery. <laughs> it's the notion of believing that people back then were somehow more primitive and weren't really capable of understanding the world like we can. And so we assert that their actions were limited and that we can overcome the same things. But guys... Our world is just as crowd-conditioned as theirs was then. We are just as likely to buy into blatant lies that the crowds flood to as anyone else in history. Think about it. In our world right now, what validates uh, a book in our culture? 
the number of copies that it sold, right? A book that has millions of copies is somehow a better locus of truth and validity, which is why we plaster phrases like New York Times bestseller on our websites or on our books. That's why authors are so obsessed with this that they will sometimes try to cheat the system to get their book on the list. The default assumption is that whatever the crowds are going to is worth trusting and it's worth pursuing. What is social media, if not the most crowd-conditioned thing we've ever come up with, right? We inject likes and retweets into our veins as if those things validate or justify or prove that we're doing something right or good. We reward and give platforms to people who draw the biggest crowds. We always elevate those folks. There are people in our culture who are literally famous for nothing other than drawing crowds. And we keep reinforcing this. We keep even in book deals and magazine deals and TV shows. We're obsessed with people for no other reason than everyone else is. And this factor, this bandwagon effect, it started to leak into our spiritual lives too. We have become people in the American church that predominantly use language when we talk about successful churches using numeric measurements. Wherever the crowds are going, that's where health is. And so we elevate people who draw crowds to them. We've built a whole system on this. There's some theologians working today who are now calling this the evangelical industrial complex. It's a system of publishing and music production and content creation that celebrates and platforms and uh, rewards people who draw the biggest crowds to them. And so that means when we enter the American church space, oftentimes we're having this reinforced to us without even realizing it. People are throwing books our way because they sell a lot of copies and they're throwing sermons our way because look at the crowds that showed up. We become conditioned to go wherever the crowds are going. And so whether we'd admit it or not, our behavior proves that we're just as crowd conditioned as anyone else in history. There's just one problem, guys. Crowds lie. Crowds lie all the time. Multiplication doesn't simply equal more truth. And oftentimes it even equals less truth, less health, less goodness. Remember, it was the crowds who flooded to the Nazi regime when they promised to make Germany great again. And it led to the destruction of their country. It was the crowds who flooded to large and impressive church productions over much of the 20th century, looking at all of the fruit, all of the crowds around them, and then over time found out that there was a lot of Abuse and narcissism and unhealth at the heart of those things. Not always, but often that happened. Remember that it's often the crowd that compels us in the little actions of our everyday lives to become consumeristic because everyone else is. So we got to keep up with the Joneses. To become people who are obsessed with therapeutic comfort, who go to any length just to be safe and happy when the reality is life is found much more in giving yourself away than hoarding and protecting. The crowds are not where truth is found very often. That's why philosopher Soren Kierkegaard famously said that the crowd is untruth. He wrote a whole book with that as the title. That's why Alcyon of York, another theologian, way back in the 8th century, said that the riotousness of the crowds is always very close to madness. Guys, the life that we are most, most deeply longing for, a life of truth and peace and love, it's not found by becoming crowd-conditioned. It's not found when we jump on the bandwagon and race to what everyone else is racing towards. And very often, not always, but very often, that path leads us straight into death, straight into a lung cancer of the soul. So what do we do, right? We live in a crowd-conditioned world. That's obvious. So how can we find life in such a culture? Where do we go for that? 
we're continuing in a sermon series here at Midtown called When Things Fall Apart. We're looking at the life and teaching of the prophet Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was speaking to a nation of people called Judah that were themselves quite crowd-conditioned, chasing after the things that their culture was chasing after. But in today's passage, Jeremiah holds up an alternative to their bandwagoning nature. He holds up a different way. And he says, this, this is the way to true life. This is an example that you, Judah, can follow. As it turns out, it's also an example that you and I can follow today in our own crowd-conditioned culture. So friends, if you have a Bible, turn in it with me uh, to the book of Jeremiah. This is near the end of your Old Testament, if you're flipping there. Uh, Look for the big number 35. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 35, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 16. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to have the words behind me on the screen if you'd like to follow along as well. Jeremiah chapter 35, starting in verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of King Jehoiakim, son of Josiah of Judah. Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak with them, and bring them to the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers, then offer them wine to drink. So I took Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, son of Habazaniah, and his brothers, and all his sons, and the whole house of the Rechabites. I brought them to the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials above the chamber of Maasiah, son of Shalom, keeper of the threshold. Then I set before the Rechabites pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, have some wine. But they answered, we will drink no wine. For our ancestor Jonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us, you shall never drink wine, neither you nor your children, nor shall you ever build a house or sow seed, nor shall you plant a vineyard or even own one. But you shall live in tents all your days, that you may live many days in the land where you reside. We've obeyed the charge of our ancestor Jonadab, son of Rechab, in all that he commanded us, to drink no wine all our days, ourselves, our wives, our sons, and our daughters, and not to build houses to live in. We have no vineyard or field or seed, but we've lived in tents and have obeyed and done all that our ancestor Jonadab commanded us. But when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came up against the land, we said, come, let us go to Jerusalem for fear of the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Aramaeans. That's why we're living in Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, go and say to the people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, can you not learn a lesson and obey my words, says the Lord? The command has been carried out that Jonadab, son of Rechab, gave to his descendants to drink no wine, and they drink none to this day, for they've obeyed their ancestors' command. But I myself have spoken to you persistently, and you've not obeyed me. I've sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently, saying, turn now every one of you from your evil way and amend your doings. Don't go after other gods to serve them, and then you shall live in the land that I gave to you, to your ancestors. But you did not incline your ear or obey me. The descendants of Jonadab, son of Rechab, have carried out the command that their ancestor gave them. But this people has not obeyed me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It all started at 7.51 a.m. on a Friday in Washington, D.C. There was an ordinary man dressed in a faded blue shirt and normal-looking black jeans and a Washington Nationals hat. And he arrived at one of the busiest metro stations in D.C. that morning. He positioned himself against a sidewall just next to a trash can, not somebody you'd notice very easily. And then he opened up a small case 
out of that case, he brought a violin, and then he left the case there, dropped a couple dollars in to encourage giving, and started to play. And for 45 minutes, he played six brilliant classical pieces, from Bach to Schubert. Now keep in mind, this is the peak of rush hour in one of the busiest city centers in our country. People are hustling to their jobs in federal Washington. You've got bureaucrats, you've got project managers, you've got policy analysts. You know those jobs that sound like the titles are kind of made up, but they sound really important, right? Those sorts of jobs. Those are the people who are rushing around to their things. And each of these people were being faced with a choice, with this man playing violin on the way to their work. Did they stop and listen? Or do they hurry past and ignore this man with the rest of the crowd that's consumed with their stuff, their busyness? Or do they kind of quickly toss in money to feel better about themselves and then move on with their day, right? Those are questions that we all often ask when we encounter a similar thing in our lives. But how might those responses change if the man standing next to the trash can wasn't just an ordinary man? What if, hypothetically, he was one of the most talented classical musicians in the world? What if the violin he was playing was one of the most expensive in the world, worth over $4 million? What would people do then? And that's exactly the situation that the Washington Post wanted to test. Back in 2007, they teamed up with Joshua Bell, who's maybe the greatest living classical violinist, and they wanted to see how people would respond to him playing on the Metro. But they didn't want it to be some show. They just wanted to look like any other normal guy. And so he did. He dressed up like any other average Joe. In the midst of their crowd-conditioned busyness, they wondered how would people respond to this immense beauty, this incredible artistry, this excellence in their midst. And the results were fascinating. In total, in those 45 minutes, around 1,100 people walked by Joshua Bell. Any guesses on how many people stopped? Throw some numbers out. Five? Not a lot of confidence over there. More confidence over here. Eleven, still not a lot. Seven people stopped. Two of them already knew who Joshua Bell was because they had seen him play. So five was pretty close to right on. And that day, a few people dropped money in the case. But in total, Joshua Bell, one of the most amazing musicians in the world, dressed like a normal dude, walked away with $32.17. These folks were being given an example of transcendent beauty and goodness in their midst. It was emanating from an ordinary man in an ordinary place, but they were so conditioned by the crowd that they missed it. Which should immediately make every one of us ask the pertinent question, how will we respond when we get examples of ordinary and committed beauty in life, when those are presented to us in our own lives? How will we respond? And that's the same sort of question that Jeremiah wants the people of Judah to consider in this passage. See, these people have been chasing after the gods of their culture. Sex and wealth and power, they've been going wherever the rest of the world is going. And it's causing them to neglect true life and justice, love and peace that God has called them to. It's as if they can't be shaken out of their running with the crowd. So Jeremiah, being the brilliant prophet that he is, says, I'm going to use a big public example. That's what prophets often did. They use an object lesson. You guys might remember a few weeks ago, we shattered a pot in here as an example of what Jeremiah might have done back then. This is the same sort of thing, a huge object lesson to try to teach Judah, hey, move away from where you're going and go this way instead. And he decided to use the Rechabite people as this object lesson, as this example. And the Rechabites just flat out were kind of weirdos at the time. We don't get a lot of information about them in the scriptures. They're only mentioned about three times. 
But from what we can tell, they were nomads, so they traveled from place to place. They never set roots anywhere. Many scholars today have asserted that they were likely metal workers, so blacksmiths and that sort of thing. They made tools and chariots and those sorts of things for people. They moved from city to city, and people from those cities would go out to them to repair things or to fix things. And when the resources were exhausted or when that town didn't need them anymore, they'd move on to the next town. And they, accordingly, in history, worshipped the same God as Judah, Yahweh, this God of peace and justice and love. But the major difference was that they remained faithful where Judah didn't. And they had certain practices of faithfulness that Judah didn't. And again, their practices aren't necessarily something that Judah would want to emulate. They live in tents. They live this minimalistic life. They also refuse to drink alcohol. For over 250 years, they never drank a drop. They set this aside as a principle for their people. So for more than two centuries, they had been faithful to this life of following Yahweh, given their particular principles, together. But now, the Babylonians are coming in. This oppressive empire is coming to kind of decimate the land and take it over. And so, living in tents is no longer as safe. They move into Jerusalem in order to be safe. And Jeremiah realizes that this is the perfect moment to show these people in Judah what real faithfulness looks like. So, he invites the Rechabites out to lunch. He says, come on into the city in a big public place so a lot of people can see you. We're going to have lunch together. We're going to throw a party. But he's got a trick up his sleeve. He gets two massive pitchers of wine. Pitchers of wine. They want you to know that there is plenty of wine for whoever wants it here. He sets them down on the table and he says, Rechabites, come have some wine with me. He knows that they don't drink it. Why is he doing this? Because he wants the people of Judah to know that it's possible to stay committed to your principles in a place where others aren't. In a place where everyone's conditioned by the crowd, Jeremiah wants them to see that the Rechabites aren't the same way. That they're committed to principles. And so they show up, and sure enough, they refuse to drink the wine. And they say that this is because their great forefather, Jonadab, son of Rechab, put this rule in place. And so they say that there is something that drives us other than the conditions of the crowd right now. So just as a recap, in the midst of a place that is very foreign to them, with foreign people who have different priorities than them, they refuse to be conditioned by the crowd around them. To the crowds of Judah, this was a conviction because they had given up God willy-nilly at every new God that came along. And the Rechabites are a reminder to them that a life of faithfulness is possible. It's livable. You don't have to be conditioned by the crowd. The life of faithfulness is always going the other direction. It's not running after the gods. It's instead illustrated in ordinary, everyday faithfulness. And there's two parts to this faithfulness that are brought up in this text. We see that the Rechabites first listen to the right voice, and second, live with holistic integrity. They listen to the right voice, and they live with holistic integrity. So first, listening to the right voice. In response to Jeremiah, there's a word that's used four times in this chapter to describe the Rechabites. It's used in verse 8, 10, 14, and 18. In my version that I read, it's translated as obeyed to English. In your version, it might be translated as listened. And this is a case where actually multiple English translations are really helpful to us. Uh, I recommend when you're studying the Bible, have a couple translations around because sometimes they can help us get at words in new ways. So don't just locate in one. You can have one favorite, but have a few around. Obeyed and listened are implied here to describe the Rechabites' actions. And that's important. The same word is translated both ways. And in the biblical imagination, in the way that we understand a life of faith, to listen is never separated from obedience. Those two things are never distinct from one another. They're two sides of the same 
coin. So to listen is to change one's life. And if you haven't changed your life based on what you've heard, then you haven't listened. And we intuitively know this in our lives. Though we often try to create separation between cognitive hearing and understanding and then action, we really know when it plays itself out in our lives that these two things should go in tandem. At least my parents knew this, which is why they got mad when I didn't clean their room or my room after they asked me to. Right? They'd say, hey, could you clean your room or do this chore? And I'd be like, yeah, sure. I didn't do it. Right? What would they say to me? You didn't listen. Now, they didn't literally mean I didn't hear, right? They knew I heard. That's actually why they were bummed with me, because I heard and didn't follow. I didn't listen. Listening demands obedience. Those two things go together. And when we don't have those things together, then we live fractured lives, lives that aren't focused on the right things in the right ways. That's why my parents were bummed, because it seemed like that I had trust in them, and then I betrayed that trust by not doing what they asked me. And so the Rechabites here, they're people who listen to the right voice. In the midst of a busy metro station of their culture, they stop and commit themselves to the father of their faith. But they don't stop there. They refuse to follow the voice of the crowds, and in doing so, they obey. They act differently because of their listening. And Judah is being contrasted with them here. See, Judah had heard the commands of God. They cognitively heard them and understood them. They sat through teaching after teaching. Every week in church, they'd show up. They memorized scripture. They participated in all of the great holidays for their religion. But when it came to their lives, they were utterly unchanged. They hadn't really listened. And as religious people in our day, we're faced with the same sort of trap all the time, friends. We spend lots of time together in this room on Sundays and also throughout the weeks. We spend lots of time listening to the scriptures and hearing them. We spend lots of time hearing Jesus tell us to love our enemies and to be generous and to remain connected with God throughout our week. We hear those things. But do we actually listen? I know, at least in my life, I often get to Tuesday and there's other things that I start to listen to. Other crowd-conditioned noise that I start to buy into. And so I can harbor resentment at a neighbor that I don't love. It's annoying me. I can become anxious about money and start to hoard it, follow the instinct of the crowds, instead of giving it away generously and trusting God with it. I can overlook sacrifice to the community and think, well, it's really just about me being comfortable and follow the way of the crowd here in the U.S. Those are all temptations, all voices that can condition me out there. And we need to remember that everything we hear in here, it's meant to be obeyed out there. It's a central part of our lives. And here's the truth, you guys. God's voice is present in the middle of all of the metro stations, in the middle of all the busyness, in the middle of all the crowds. God's voice is there. And it's always speaking divine music of love and grace and peace. It's always playing like Joshua Bell was. But that music is being heard and played through ordinary, everyday listening and obeying, not through big crowd-drawing spectacle. It's being heard and played through ordinary women in this center who serve every week to transform this neighborhood with no stage and no platform and no spotlight on them. It's being heard and played in the prayers of parents with their kids before bed at the end of hectic and stressful and exhausting days. It's being heard and played in the small lunch conversations with coworkers about the deeper aspects of life and faith, the things that go unnoticed, the small, not the big crowd spectacles. And we often fail to hear the voice of God, not because it's not speaking, 
but because we're being drawn to where the crowds are, because we're chasing after those voices instead. Followers of Jesus, you guys, are people who take regular pauses in their life to listen to the right music, to prioritize that music, and to obey the call of that music in their lives, which means we should be the sorts of people who ask ourselves really important questions, questions like these. Are my priorities being shaped by the cultural crowd around me or by the life and message of Jesus? Is my treatment of my neighbor reflective of the crowd's assumptions or Jesus' assumptions? Am I mirroring the anxiety of my culture or am I shaped by the eternal perspective of Christ? In short, whose voice am I listening to right now? We need the example of the Rechabites just as much as Judah did back then. We need them because they remind us that ordinary, faithful listening and obeying is possible in the midst of the crowds. It's possible for a community to live lives that are committed to transcendent principles. It's possible to escape our crowd conditioning. And this sort of life, this listening and obeying sort of life, leads to a second critical thing about the Rechabites. It leads them to holistic integrity. These were the sorts of people who did what they said and said what they did. They weren't wishy-washy. They knew what was most important, and that allowed them to shape their lives based on those priorities. And so they trusted the words of their father. They allowed those words to shape them, and they didn't get sucked into the way of the crowd. Moving around from city to city, they never got sucked in. And Jeremiah commends them for this. And it's important, Jeremiah doesn't now say, all right, Judah, go live in tents and stop drinking wine. So if that's the thing for you, wipe your brow, it's okay. Wine is okay. He's commending instead their faithfulness, their steadfastness, their holistic integrity to stay committed to the things that they're supposed to. And the reality is that there's a lot of different ways to follow Jesus in our world. There's a lot of different denominations that have different priorities and focus on different things. You can follow Jesus in all of those. But the point is holistic integrity in our lives as we follow Jesus. Are we allowing him to shape every part of what we do? Whatever our distinct priorities are, whatever the things uh, that are really important to us are. I know people who don't drink alcohol out of principle and follow Jesus with holistic integrity. I know people who drink alcohol and follow Jesus with holistic integrity. The point is the faithfulness, the committedness. And so, friends, whenever we proclaim the forgiveness of Jesus in here, whenever we talk about it in here, we should go practice that forgiveness with our neighbors in the week. We should allow it to shape our lives holistically. When we come together and worship a refugee named Jesus on Sundays, we should probably go care for refugees in the world. When we speak of seeking love and peace and generosity here, we should probably be shaped by those principles out there. And here's the truth, guys. Counter to the crowds and where they flood, that faithful, holistic integrity shapes people in ways that the crowds never can. They change lives in the ways that crowds never can. It's changed my life examples like this. When I was younger, uh, there was a man I knew who lived with holistic integrity. His name was Jay. Jay was a pastor, he was a teacher, he was a husband, he was a father, and he was remarkably, incredibly steady, consistent in every part of his life. And I know because I got a lot of insight over years into his life. I shared tents with him on camping trips. I watched and played sports with him all the time. Times where your competitive urges are rising, right? He was always dictated by the right priorities. I saw how he parented his kids, how he loved his wife, how he talked about finances. He invited me into those conversations. His love for Christ was entirely evident in everything he did. 
And I can say with confidence that I would not have pursued a vocation in ministry and I wouldn't be a pastor without the example of Jay. Wouldn't have happened. It shaped my life. And I know it shaped thousands of others' lives because I know those people. Every single one of us has a Rechabite in our life like that. Somebody who lives a holistically integrated life, who shapes others around them by their integrity. Every one of you has a Rechabite right now. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes. Everyone in the room, close your eyes right now. Take a few seconds to answer this question. Who's a Rechabite in your life? Who's someone who listens to the right voice and lives with holistic integrity? Picture that person's face. Picture their posture in front of you. Now, keeping your eyes closed, consider one particular practice or habit that that person emphasizes in their life. Could be prayer, could be scripture reading, could be another discipline, could be not drinking wine, I don't know. When you have that practice in your mind, remember it and lock it into your brain and then commit to it in your own life. Look for the ways that you could build that thing into your life this week, right now. Allow their holistic integrity to lead you in your life. And then invite somebody else in this community to do the same with you, to walk alongside you in that practice. That's what we're about here at Midtown. We want to be transformed people together who live holistically transformed lives. All right, open your eyes, friends. Let's learn from the Rechabites today. This little tribe of people who we don't know a ton about, but we know enough about. Let's become people who listen to the right voice. Let's become people who live holistically integrated lives because when we do, we'll find ourselves near and present to God, the very source of life. We'll find slowly and steadily that our lives are being transformed by his love and his grace, not by the crowds and their anxieties and their passions. We'll be freed from crowd conditioning and we'll become a community of people whose whose lives emanate the divine music emanate the divine love and grace and justice that God invites us to partner with him in. We'll be different sorts of people in the metro stations of our world. Let's pray, friends.